From State Impact Pennsylvania, this is Energy Explained, a podcast where we go behind the stories to explore Pennsylvania's energy economy. I'm Susan Phillips. We hear a lot about how fracking impacts the environment. Today, we're joined by an author who has written a compelling book about fracking from the financial point of view. Business reporter Bethany McLean has a new book out called Saudi America, The Truth About Fracking and How It's Changing the World. Bethany, welcome to Energy Explained. Thank you so much for having me on. I've covered fracking here in Pennsylvania for about seven years. And one of my first stories actually was about Chesapeake Energy, which did a lot of drilling early on in northeast Pennsylvania. And I remember going up there 2011, 2012, and Chesapeake was everywhere funding new hospitals. And there were billboards promoting Chesapeake and its charitable activities. We love the places we call home. The people we call neighbors. And it's our pledge. And our privilege to make a difference. And what's interesting to me is this book is basically a primer on Chesapeake Energy's evolution, and more importantly, its founder, Audrey McClendon. Can you tell me a little bit about McClendon and why you decided to focus your book on him? I was fascinated with McClendon going back to around the time you started to cover fracking. In the last few years, we've discovered the equivalent of two Saudi Arabias of oil in the form of natural gas in the United States. Not one, but two. He's one of those larger-than-life characters that comes along every so often in the business world and literally proves that old adage, truth is stranger than fiction, um, over over right. and over again. Right. And a source of mine used to tell me two things that piqued my interest. One was that Aubrey McClendon was the most important man in America. Obviously, there's a fair degree of hyperbole at work in that. But what he meant by that is that if McClendon was right and America had a really cheap supply of natural gas, that would change the type of industries that were low Located here, it would change America's economic future. Um, but he and his, this this guy and his and his partner would also have a debate. And his partner would say, the oil and gas are real. And my friend John would say, yeah, but the economics don't work. And so McClendon's Chesapeake is also the example of just how much cash these enterprises, these fracking enterprises can burn through and how financially weak they can be despite this idea that they are changing the world. That conundrum was really interesting to me. A lot of people in Pennsylvania know Chesapeake because they hold a significant distinction among fracking companies here. Chesapeake has actually billed leaseholders instead of paying them royalties when things started to go south for the company. And it's not mentioned in your book, but I'm just wondering... If in your reporting, you looked into that. There were a lot of lawsuits all over the country, um, including in Texas, um, complaining about how Chesapeake treated them, particularly as the company fell on economically hard times. And I think that that story does tell the, the, the flip side of fracking, while it has helped people to make um, an enormous amount of uh, um, money in some cases, landowners, and that has divided communities. There also is a cost to it if the enterprise itself falls on troubled times and doesn't eventually make money. And that's what's so interesting is that, you know, the idea that they were making all this money, and yet it, it was based on what your book describes as not a real solid foundation, that they they weren't actually turning a profit, but there was a lot of money moving around. And I think that's what's hard for the average person to understand. 
I think it's shocking. I think most people understand that fracking is environmentally contentious. I think they don't understand that it's financially contentious as well. And what I mean by that is that there's a battle on Wall Street, um, always has been with short sellers, people who bet against stocks saying these these companies don't don't make money. The economics here don't don't work. And yet the amount of money, the sums are just so staggering. I calculated in the book that from the early 2000s through 2012, when McClendon was kicked out of Chesapeake, the company raised over $30 billion in debt and equity, paid Wall Street over a billion dollars in fees. And that's not even to mention the other $30 billion plus that Chesapeake raised um, in more in more creative ways. And so the sums are just, uh, the sums that have gone into the ground are just astonishing. And the sums that have been paid to Wall Street are astonishing. And yet the sums that are paid to leaseholders, say in places like Texas and Pennsylvania, are actually in the negative. They're actually sending bills to those folks. Yeah, it's one of the things that actually has enabled fracking here to take off, unlike in other places around the world. And that is because um, people own their mineral rights and have been able to make money. And so some people have made money and others haven't. And actually, uh, uh, Eliza Griswold's great book about Pennsylvania Amity and Prosperity shows how the ways in which some people can make money while others effectively pay a very high price has really divided communities. That's right. I mean, that's a lot of our reporting is here is basically on the winners and losers. Um, yes, yes, and there there are both. <laughs> that absolutely. To back up a little bit, you mentioned something about short sellers earlier. If you just give us a quick primer on wh- wh- who they are and what role did they play? Right. So one of the things I I chose to focus in this book, not on the environmental issues, because it is a mini book, it's meant to be a quick read. And so I had to I had to choose my focus. And I focused very much on the financial angles and very much the 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 purely financial angles by which I mean, people on Wall Street, short sellers who are betting that stocks aren't going to do well, that a company isn't all it's cracked up to be that a stock is going to decline, who are who are betting against the frackers, not out of any ideological reason, not because they're concerned about the environment, but merely because they think the economics don't work. And that, to me, was a very clean and compelling story. And is that how you decided to pursue this book in the first place? Or tell me what drove you to even get this idea to to look into this? Well, really, it was my obsession with Aubrey McClendon that made me want to write about this because he is just such a compelling character. But then, yes, this idea that this this thing called fracking is reshaping the world, a source of mine says in the book, it's one of the top five things reshaping geopolitics. It's having all these impacts around the globe. And yet the business model is really unstable. This industry as a whole has not proven yet that it can produce free cash flow. And so the key question to me is, what happens if the financial environment changes and Wall Street stops funding these companies, what happens to the American fracking revolution? How much oil and gas can these companies actually produce if they can only reinvest the cash flow they're, they're producing and Wall Street stops, stops sending them funds? And that's in part because it costs so much relatively compared to other countries to get the oil or gas out of the ground. It does. Well, it's a key distinction between fracking, so-called horizontal drilling combined with hydraulic fracturing and a traditional old vertical well. The key distinction is that the decline rates on fracked wells are much higher, meaning that you'll get most of the oil and gas you're going to get in year one. In year two, you're going to produce significantly less. So if you're a company that needs to keep growing to show your investors that you're, you're growing, you have to keep reinvesting in order to keep producing oil and gas. And so the thesis among those who are 
skeptical of the economic model is that companies will never be able to outrun the required reinvestment, that those numbers will always be so big that they will always, in effect, be operating like a Ponzi scheme where they need more capital from the outside in order to keep growing. In Pennsylvania, obviously, we've been focusing our reporting on shale gas. And I realize a lot of what you discussed in the book is shale oil. How different are they? Is shale gas a little bit more stable in terms of its financial backing? I think shale gas is really different than shale oil, and there are a couple of key distinctions. One is that fracking actually started with natural gas. It only moved to oil when the amount of frack natural gas cratered the prices so much that nobody could could make money anymore, which is part of what, what killed Chesapeake. But shale gas is, the decline rates are not as bad on the wells, and even at very low gas prices, there's an argument that it is more economically viable than shale oil is. When you say the decline on the wells, you mean that over time, the gas is not going to drop, you know, the amount of gas coming out is not going to drop significantly, like it does for oil. Yes, over time, the amount of gas is not going to drop as significantly as it does for oil. The other really big difference with, with, with natural gas is that America actually is, we do have a huge low-cost supply of, of natural gas, whether that's a good, let's put aside the question for the moment of whether that's a good or a bad thing for the environment. But we do actually have a really low-cost supply of natural gas. With oil, the picture is nowhere near as clear. So if you really wanted to make America energy independent, you would be actually more focused on natural gas than you would be on oil, and you would be converting our transportation infrastructure to natural gas uh, as, as much as possible. Oil, it's much less clear both the economic viability of this, it's also much less clear how much of it we actually have that can be gotten out of the ground at prices that where anybody can make any money. And I think one of the costs of us believing that we are a huge supplier of oil has been to neglect that possible transition to natural gas as well as to neglect perhaps the transition to renewables. And why do you think that is? Because once we started to believe that we had this huge supply of oil, that we were America energy independent, the the impetus went away, right? The feeling of, of overwhelming stress that we needed to do this in order to ensure our security for our future, we thought arrogantly, well, look, we have all this oil. We don't need to worry about this anymore. This begs the issue with your title, Saudi America, you know, some somewhat ironic, I imagine. Um, talk to me about why you chose that title. Right. Well, it is somewhat ironic because I came to believe through the course of reporting on the book that this whole concept of energy independence, even if we were producing a lot of oil and and natural gas, was kind of a fraud. And what I mean by that is that American presidents going back to the 1970s have been talking about energy independence. It's become this grand concept that in modern years is completely unanchored to reality. Back in the 1970s, the Texas Railroad Commission could set the price of a barrel of oil. Today, the price of a barrel of oil is set by global markets, meaning the price that American consumers pay at the pump is going to be influenced by events in Libya and Nigeria and Venezuela, regardless of how much oil we're producing here. We, we can't, there's no such thing as, as energy independence. Even more, even if we didn't need the Middle East's oil, 
our trading partners need it. So I came across this fascinating analysis that six of the top 10 sources of imports into the U.S., including goods we need for our high-tech industry to function, come from Asia, which is heavily dependent on Middle Eastern oil. And you'll notice in the wake of the horrible news about Jamal Khashoggi's killing and the possible um, implications for Saudi Arabia, you haven't heard anybody say, oh, look, American energy independence, we don't need Saudi Arabia, we can just walk away from all this and tell them to go to hell. And so that, to me, the events of the past few weeks, tragic, 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 or month have shown just how fraudulent this whole concept of American energy independence is. There's really no such thing. Exactly. It's such a it's such a global market at this point, and everyone's so interconnected. And that was one of the things I was going to ask you about um, Jamal Khashoggi's death, because you did write a lot about Mohammed bin Salman, you you wrote about him and his decisions. And given the recent crisis, do you see anything changing there? Or, you know, you made a good point about the fact that the crisis proves there is no real energy independence to be achieved here. But is there anything else beyond that? Right. Well, I think we also have tended to perceive um, energy independence or America's freedom from Saudi Arabia as, as as a good thing. But there are places in the world that break as the price of oil falls. And Saudi Arabia is more unstable than it's ever been, in part because there's this concept of the fiscal break-even price for, for a barrel of oil. So even though Saudi Arabia can get its oil out of the ground very cheaply, they've built up this mammoth state that depends on oil to, to fund it. And so the latest numbers I saw were that they need about $90 a barrel for their economy to be able to break even. And the last few years of low oil prices really helped um, Mohammed bin Salman rise to power and cement his grip on, on Saudi Arabia. He had this thing called Vision 2030, which was this grand plan to transition Saudi Arabia's economy away from its dependence on oil. But even apart from the the deep questions about about his character. There's also a real question as to how 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 doable his plan is. The key the keystone to all of this was supposed to be taking Saudi Ar- Aramco, which is the state-owned oil company, public, and the valuation was supposed to be enormous and was supposed to give them the money to reinvest in their economy and transition it. And although he still says that IPO is going to happen, it's very questionable as to whether it will. And without that money, it's unclear how Saudi Arabia gets its economy um, to to transition. And I think what any expert in the Middle East will tell you is it's really hard to know what's going to happen. What we do know is that there's more uncertainty there than there's been in a really long time. And again, I don't you know, in a simplistic world, you would say, oh, that's good for the U.S., uncertainty in the, in the Middle East. If you're at all nuanced about it, you say that that's not good at all. And you did write a little bit about U.S. shale oil really forced the Saudis to contemplate cutting production which they didn't do. Talk to me about that. I mean, that sort of that that really disrupted the oil industry. Right. So the price of a barrel of oil was plummeting. And there's this really key meeting around on Thanksgiving of, of 2014, where Saudi Arabia, essentially OPEC has to decide whether they're going to cut production in, in an effort to boost prices or not. And Saudi Arabia makes the decision not to. And prices plummet all the way down to $26 for a barrel of oil. And this was widely seen as an attempt by Saudi Arabia to kill the U.S. fracking industry because Saudi Arabia understands the financial shaky 
leakiness of, of the foundations of this. And they thought if you can depress the price of a barrel of oil so much, the American frackers um, will go out of business. And just a little note of caution on this. Everyone who knows the Middle East cautioned me that to ever say subscribe anything for certain to anyone in Saudi Arabia, you, you just don't know from the outside. But that's that's one of the explanations that's out there for, for, for what happened. And indeed, it did. It put over 100 American oil and gas companies out of business. Um, and it looked for a while like the American fracking revolution was was dead. And right at the bottom in the spring of 2016 is when Aubrey McClendon um, dies this somewhat mysterious death. And it looked like the punctuation point saying this is all over. But it wasn't. And so one cautionary note that I, or, or humbling note that I came to in researching this book is that it's really hard to predict the future of either fracking or of oil and gas. Everyone who has done so over the course of history has been wrong. And so the book is somewhat nuanced as to what is actually, or ambiguous as to what is going to happen next. I don't predict the crash and burn of this of this industry. What I tried to do is lay out reasons to be skeptical or reasons to be cautious while trying to stay away from certainty about how it's going to play out. What about shale gas? I mean, what impact has that had on the global market for natural gas or liquid natural gas, liquefied natural gas? It's a slightly complicated question because all of the infrastructure you need in order to transport natural gas has not been in place. So a lot of the impact that natural gas will have on global markets is sort of a TK to to come. And you can see it starting to change things in these immense regasification facilities that are being built in, in, in Europe um, and the immense facilities that are being built here in order to transform natural gas into something that can be shipped and then regasified. And the idea is that it's really going to change geopolitics, particularly in Europe, because Europe has for decades relied heavily on Russia for its natural gas. And the idea is if the U.S. can import LNG into Europe, then Europe can free itself from its dependency on, on Russian natural gas. And that's going to have a huge impact um, in allowing Europe to negotiate better terms with Russia and allowing Europe some degree of, of freedom and flexibility from Russia. That has yet to play out because the, the necessary infrastructure Structure, particularly in Europe, from the regasification plants to the pipelines, isn't in place yet. On our shores, you can see the impact it's having with the petrochemical facilities that are going up. You know, that side of the p- predictions about McClendon, that it would change the type of industry that's located in the U.S., is, is happening in spades, which is questionable from an environmental standpoint, but at least from a short term economic standpoint, probably a benefit to the U.S. And by the petrochemical plants, you're talking about, say, for instance, the Shell ethane cracker that's planned yes. for Western Pennsylvania and yes, other other facilities across the country. That's not the only one out there. Yep, absolutely. And then these immense facilities in order to um, liquefy the natural gas and ship it overseas are are also, um, you know, billion, billion, billion dollar facilities. Right, right. And in terms of just wanted to circle back again to the impact of the low interest rates. And I know you don't like to, you know, predict, nobody likes to predict what's going to happen in the oil and gas industry. Um, but what do you think could happen if interest rates start to go up? Will that just impact the shale oil or will that also have an impact on shale gas? 
I think it will have an impact, and there are two ways in which low interest rates have helped fuel fracking. Um, I say in the book that people think the key ingredient in fracking is chemicals. It's actually not. It's capital. And so the Federal Reserve's policy, interest rate policy in the wake of the financial crisis with slashing interest rates is actually part of what helped fuel the, the fracking revolution. And so one way in which it's helped is that companies have to pay less interest on their debt. And for highly indebted companies like fracking, both shale oil and shale and shale gas, um, that's their ability to raise capital cheaply has made a huge difference. But the other not quite as obvious impact is that pension funds in particular have been unable to make a return in this era of super low um, interest rates. And so they increasingly have been putting their capital into higher risk vehicles, namely private equity firms and, um, and hedge funds, who in turn have invested a lot of money into shale oil and shale gas. I saw an estimate that a third of the fracking being done in this country is now being done by privately backed companies, um, mainly private equity, private equity backed companies. And so the two impacts if rates start to rise are one capital will become more expensive and that will make it even harder for companies to make money. But the other impact is that the capital flows into this industry may may change because pension funds will be able to earn a return elsewhere and they won't be quite as desperate to find um, find find their return here. And so that may also dry up some of the capital that's been available to fund fracking. Yeah, that was the other interesting thing I learned from your book was how much of an impact or how, how much of a role that pension funds and pensioners, I guess, by default have played in this fracking revolution. Yeah, I quote somebody as saying, I think something along the lines of pension funds have been the key enabler of the of the fracking revolution. And I think what I tried to get at in this book was the very people, the various ways in which Wall Street and the flow of money has impacted what has happened in fracking. You tend to think of these as two separate things, right? But in reality, they are very intimately linked. Right. Interesting. The other question I have for you is, you know, I'm not a business reporter. I do business stories from time to time, mostly, you know, just sort of reacting to something like a company goes bankrupt and we report on it. But tell me a little bit about what it's like to cover this from a business angle in terms of what you actually have to do. Like what kind of documents do you have to unearth? And, you know, when you're looking at records, what are you actually looking for? So I always go to a company's financial statements, which are filed with the Securities and Exchange Commission, and those documents from their annual reports to their quarterly reports contain a wealth of information. And you can see um, the amount of money they're making, where their cash flow is going, what they're spending. And I always think to get a complete picture of, of a company, you want to understand that part of things, because it often lays out a different picture than even their public presentations might. And just to give you an example, and in the fracking space. So companies will show these wells that they say are making an 80% return. And that's part of the reason why people think that this must be making so much money. But then you go to that same company's um, financial statements, and it turns out the overall company isn't making any money at all. And so the question is, what happens from those supposed returns at the well to the consolidated results of, of the company? Where Where is the money going? And various people described it to me um, as presentation math, which I thought was just a great term of art. 
what I found is that one well may not be representative of a company at all. And companies will cherry pick their really good wells and say, look, this is how much oil and gas we're producing. Look at this well. And that well may or may not be representative of all of the acreage that that the company owns. And that kind of cherry picking of wells continues to this day. And I think it gets to one of the very key questions about fracking, which is how much really good land is there? All land is not created equal. This idea that you can frack a well and it's like, a manufacturing process, you just drill and a certain amount of oil or gas comes out, is just not true. Geology is still a mystery. The earth, the earth is still a mystery. And even wells located near each other can have very, very different results. And I think that idea of respecting the geology has gotten lost in these claims about the American fracking revolution. When the fracking industry first came to Pennsylvania, um, a lot of people quickly got concerned about environmental issues and and wanted to pass new environmental laws. And there was a big push for that. And there was also a big push to uh, tax the gas coming out of the wells because Pennsylvania does not have a severance tax. Uh, They eventually passed what they called an impact fee, which was about $50,000 per well. And it's very different than places like Oklahoma and Texas that actually literally fund their public education um, by taxing uh, oil and gas. But one of the arguments that I kept hearing from the industry, and they were convincing the governor at the time, Governor Tom Corbett, and a lot of state lawmakers would echo this argument, was that we can't tax the industry because they will leave and go somewhere else. What do you think about that? I think that's a really flawed argument because the Marcellus in Pennsylvania is the key natural gas area, and there aren't lots of other places they can go. This is not like an Amazon's headquarters that could be located in Seattle or Chicago or Detroit or Boise or Manhattan, right? This is dependent on the geography, and so they 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 can't go somewhere else. So that's I think that's a fundamentally flawed argument. What I think is the problems that the industry has fought tooth and nail against taxes and with some of the smaller operators against some environmental protections as well. And I think that's a reflection of the financial fragility of the industry because they actually don't have the money. And so that's part of why they fought this sort of stuff as as hard as they have. It's not because their coffers are overflowing. It's in fact because, uh, because the finances are difficult. In the process of doing this book, and of course, you had a business perspective, um, that's what you were looking at. Did anything else come up that made you change your mind on something or, or surprise you in any way? So the book is not an environmental book, in part because it is a mini book. And in order to to make it work in short format, um, I had to really have a laser-like focus on what on what I was going to write about. But I, in the course of reporting this this book, people said you should talk to Charlie Munger, and Charlie Munger is Warren Buffett's famous ninety-something-year-old sidekick, still as sharp as ever. And if you get a chance to talk to Charlie Munger about something, you should probably talk to him, right? right. And so, Charlie is obsessed with this issue. And there's a link between the financial instability and and the conservation argument. And what he pointed out was that there's still no substitute in many areas of modern life, and most importantly, fertilizers that we need to feed our population for, for hydrocarbons. And so essentially, what are we doing sucking all this stuff out of the ground at prices where companies don't even make any money and leaving ourselves perhaps with no supply for that proverbial rainy day later? If we were being smart, we would use this slowly 
slowly as we could, that it's like the topsoil of Iowa. You could, you should use it as slowly as you can, not as quickly as you can. And that argument really resonated with me. I think also what I was surprised by were the number of smart investors who are no longer investing in oil and gas because they think the age of renewables will be here sooner than later. And that's a whole huge controversial um, fraught area. But it is interesting thought about through that lens that what are we doing beating our chests about American energy independence when, in effect, we're celebrating our leadership in the world as it was and perhaps neglecting our leadership in the world as it's as it's going to be by allowing ourselves to fall behind in the race to develop renewables. And if that ultimately is the cost of the American fracking revolution, that we take our eye off the ball on, on renewables, I think the cost will be very high. Interesting. Thanks so much for talking with us. Thank you so much for having me on. Bethany McLean is the author of Saudi America, the truth about fracking and how it's changing the world. State Impact is a public radio collaboration from WHYY, WITF, WESA, and the Allegheny Front, covering Pennsylvania's energy economy. If you have a question, go online to our Ask Us page on the State Impact website. Our producer this week was Elizabeth Perez Luna. Scott Blanchard is State Impact's editor. I'm Susan Phillips. Thanks for listening to Energy Explained.